Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherload. This show is all about the world of first-person shooters, their legacies, their lineage, and the people who keep that world turning. It is the will of the drowned god, Cathala, that our communities band together to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Our guest this week is the vice president and executive producer at 3D Realms, and is also the founder of Slipgate Studios. You know him as Frederick Schreiber, and holy shit, what an amazing time I had talking to this guy. He just really led us into his brain, like, and it's a big one. It's like so much knowledge coming out of this guy, and I really enjoyed like editing it just because I get to go back and listen to him say it again and not feel like a dummy for not catching some of it the first time. It's just a lot to take in. He's such a passionate guy. You know, he talks about this whole journey into the gaming industry, starting off with a uh, Duke Reloaded, and just how that kind of evolved into where we're at now. Because the the real history of this whole retro first-person shooter genre, or whatever you want to call it, begins with Frederick and the team that worked on Duke Reloaded, and then Rise of the Triad, and then off to the races, here we are now. And it's such an incredible story. I want to let him tell it. And of course, we also talk about Ion Fury, we talk about Wrath, we talk about kingpin we talk about ghost runner everything it's all here it's just a solid hour and 20 minute chunk of frederick being amazing so i had to think about what epic song what kind of music could i include in this episode that would really do justice to such an amazing guest and i thought about it for a bit and then i messaged our good pal andrew holschult and i said hey man can we use duke nukem kicks ass and he said uh yeah he gave me a thumbs up Literally, and I was like, sweet. So here we go. Let's get in the keep with Fred Schreiber. Fred Schreiber and I am the CEO at Slipgate Ironworks and the uh, Vice President at 3D Realms. How does one become the Vice President of 3D Realms? Like, <laughs> uh, well, actually, uh, back in 2009, when when 3D Realms, you know, unfortunately had to lay off uh, almost everyone. Um, who worked there uh, in, in, during the wholesale of the Duke Nukem IP to Gearbox and so on, they kind of went into hiatus. And uh, at this point, I was slowly starting up my own game studio, Interceptor Entertainment. And uh, long story short, we were doing a Duke Nukem game. Then we did a, uh, a game called Rise of the Triad, a first-person shooter. And then we actually collaborated with what was left of 3D Realms. At this point, it was mainly just the uh, the founder of 3D Realms who owned the brand and uh, and had a had a storage room somewhere with all the old relics from the studio. But 3D Realms were basically dead at this point, and um, and unfortunately, 3D Realms, what was left of it, uh, got sued, 
by Gearbox for giving us a license to do a Duke Nukem game, which um, they had a carve out in their original agreement where uh, besides selling Duke Nukem Forever to Gearbox, they had the right to do a range of Duke Nukem games internally at 3D Realms. Of course, you know, no one ever thought that 3D Realms were going to exercise these rights because 3D Realms were basically just one main. Um, however, they hired us to do it and they got sued because of that. And as part of that lawsuit, we actually acquired 3D Realms in order to uh, to protect them because this is an extremely important company for us here at at that time we were called uh, Interceptor. We were huge 3D Realms fans. The only reason that we were in the games industry at all were because of 3D Realms. We all grew up with 3D Realms games. So yeah, it was very, very important to us. So, so yeah, that, that's the main reason um, we took over 3D Realms. Uh, my partner, Mike, who was an investor in, in uh, Interceptor, became the CEO, and I became the, the vice president. And my, my main role in 3D Realms from 2014, when all of this happened, was to basically handle the company, um, reboot the, the brand, the logo, the whole strategy and idea and, and, and soul of 3D Realms, what, what, what was 3D Realms known for, and so on. So that's basically how I became the vice president and you can call it general manager, creative director, whatever you, whatever you prefer to call it of 3D Realms. <laughs> It's the more people I talk to about, you know, this sort of thing, because it's a, you know, vice president, there's an expectation that comes with that. But, you know, then there's the reality of what you actually do, which is like, you're like this amazing producer, like you're working hand in hand. I talked to Killpixel recently. Jeremiah is yeah. a great guy. And just kind of the way he describes your working relationship and the way that you've handled things and the, the different IPs that you guys have, you know, either uh, carried on or picked up. And the way that you personally have handled it, it seems like you're kind of the right guy for the job to take over the kind of this legendary brand and carry it forward into a, a future while preserving what's been there all along. Well, thank you so much. And that's that, that means a lot to me to hear from from someone like Jeremiah. And you know, the the whole thing about 3D Realms was that when when it kind of died out in 2009, I'm sure that there, there was a lot of fans who who grew up with 3D Realms and were hardcore fans who were really, really sad to see what eventually became the fate of, of 3D Realms. And, uh, and yeah, it was the same with me. And I was just fortunate enough to be in a situation where I could legitimately do something to save the company. Um, and I had a true shot at saving it. And growing up with 3D Realms and being a hardcore fan throughout my entire life, I, I had a good idea of where I objectively, as an outsider, you know, never having been part of the company until then, what I thought 3D Realms was all about. Uh, it might have been different internally, but I knew from day one that, that when we take over 3D Realms and, and continue carrying the torch, this is how we're going to do things. Um, kind of in the same spirit of, of 3D Realms, this thing where... You know, we're basically just making games that we love to play ourselves, and we're staying within a very specific category and genre of games. Um, that decision came a few years ago uh, when we we did 
started developing uh, Iron Fury, of course, Wrath as well with Kill Pixel. Though those are the first two games of that strategy of basically saying, you know what, people remember 3D realms from these types of games. Let's just keep doing them, but do them better than anyone else. Just such a perfect time for that too. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you, you know, the rise of the triad and the reboot and everything, how that worked out, and obviously it's it's got its hitches and everything. But that that kind of started us on this path towards what you know. Now we're looking at dust and yeah. wrath and ion fury and like just more and more every day. This whole thing, and it, I've had a, spent way too much time on this podcast debating like what is a retro shooter or, or the <laughs> yeah. retro blah. I don't care to have that conversation anymore, but uh, nevertheless, there is a clear indicator that games like this, uh, there's a market for it. And there's a huge amount of people who are very passionate about the way these games play and what can be done with them going forward. It's not just that people only want doom clones or only want, you know, a 3D Realms style Ion Fury straight up Duke Nukem type game. It, but there's yeah. so much more that can be done. Uh, and you guys are working on Wrath, which is an excellent example of like, yeah, it's based on an old engine or whatever, but uh, there's a lot more going on here than just that. It's not a Quake clone. This is a fully new type of game, really. And th- that was kind of the point. You know, we, we, we're we not trying to reinvent the 90s in a way where. Right. You know, let's just do the same game, but with a new coat of paint. Um, but when when you see a game like Iron Fury, your your first thought is, okay, this reminds me of Duke 3D, but with a f- female and different weapons and a different setting. But it still feels like that. And the feeling comes from it being, you know, the build engine using the same design pr- principles and philosophies as as those classic shooters, build engine shooters, were made from. The, most of the textures and the artwork and the animations were basically made the same way with the same limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we also wanted to to learn from you know this additional twenty twenty five years of experience that that has accumulated within the game industry since then. You know, back when they made Quake, which Wrath is clearly a spiritual successor to, and when they made Duke Nukem three D, which Iron Fury is clearly a spiritual successor to. They had no idea how to make a first-person shooter. They just made something. And those two games, Quake and, and Duke 3D, revolutionized the entire industry. And I don't think they knew what they had. They just made something. Now, we know exactly why those games were so successful. We know what they did right. We also know where they made some mistakes. So we can take all these things and kind of perfect this formula. And then from there on, we can start bringing in new ideas. So I know, for instance, with uh, with Wrath, you know, it was never meant to be. You know, here's Quake Two, Two, you know, the seek the true sequel to Quake. Um, it was built using the Quake engine because it's made to look like a game that could have existed back then. But the actual gameplay formula is much more closer to like classic Doom. Um, they, this kind of rock paper scissors system in terms of of which weapons are weak and strong against which enemies and how does everything uh, connect through the ammo you have to the way the the weapons shoot, either hitscan projectiles, the way the enemies shoot, the way they move, so on. It's much more of like a an, an ongoing, you know, speed chess kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, we brought in all these new elements like, like 
gigantic levels, hub worlds. You can go in in between the levels, approach them any way you want at any time you want. There's a lot of things there that are very similar to Turok and Metroidvania type games and so on. Yes. So yeah, absolutely. We we try to to kind of do something new, but rooted in you know the classics. What if we were back in '96, but we had these 20, 25 years of extra knowledge, how would we then approach making a first pursuer? So when a guy like Jeremiah comes to you with an idea like Wrath, uh, what what do you see it as, you, like, how do you approach that project if you're going to take on a project like that? And then once you do, what is your role, to, like, from your own perspective <clears throat> in uh, helping make that happen? Well, in, in terms of a project like Wrath, um, there, there's two ways of approaching it. Either someone reaches out to us with an idea, you know, where I'm doing this game, been working on it for, for a few years. What do you guys think? We actually very rarely take in those projects. Um, our strategy at 3D Realms is not, you know, let's have a lot of external people pitch their ideas and then we pick the best ones. Our goal is to let's develop our own IP internally, our own ideas based on, what we would like to play. And, and then we we're basically in the team, team assembling IP building business. Mm-hmm. And a game like Wrath was actually a game that we wanted to make. And it was pure coincidence that, wow, there's a guy already doing that. <laughs> he's called Jeremiah, and he's been trying to make this kind of game for a number of years now. So that was kind of a match made in heaven. You know, we instead of doing exactly what he's already trying to do, why not reach out to him and tell him, you know what, we kind of want to do the same thing. How about we team up, we give you a team, we help you assemble a dream team to make this game, we fund the whole thing, and we release it as a Three Realms game, and you get to shape your studio. And uh, so that's actually a, a special case. That's not usually how it happens. Like with Iron Fury, for instance, you know, the whole idea of Iron Fury was already planned before any of the Void Point guys were brought on board. Uh, you, we already knew that, okay, we want to make a build engine game. We want it to take place in the Bombshell universe. We want it to be a prequel. has to be Shelley Harrison. Uh, but let's find people who are build engine experts. And then we just reached out to you know, the two guys from Void Point. That was Richard and Emin back then. Um, and then a bunch of other modders and mappers and asked them, hey, would you like to make the next building in game at 3D Realms. And the, yeah, that's how that project came along. So in almost all cases, it's basically us wanting to do a new game in a genre or a type of game that we were very fond of when we were younger. And now we'd like to bring back a game in that style. But as a new original IP, we reached out to people who are also fans of that, but who can also make stuff in whatever that engine is or that type of game we assemble a team we pitch our ideas together with the team we draft brand new game design brand new world brand new ip and then we start producing the game that's a really interesting part of what you guys are doing is i don't think it happens enough but people you know are really truly when you're trying to make a game like this in the build engine or in the quake engine like you have a whole wealth of people who are out there who are the experts on this and have been doing it you know continuously in many cases for the entire time like 
20, 25 years of experience. Yeah. Sitting there and, and they're not making, you know, any kind of, they're not even expecting to make any money off of it or anything. It's just something they love to do. So for you guys to be brave enough to just, instead of, oh, we'll just hire some guys to learn how to do that or whatever. It's like, hey, let's just go tap into the market of people who are passionate and, and are already the experts at this. That's really cool. Well, those guys are the experts. We we don't yeah. know how to do that. Like, like, we're just fans ourselves. Like a recent example is Kingpin. Uh, Kingpin Reloaded is a game, the original Kingpin Life of Crime is a game that we we consider ourselves fans of it. But regardless of how hardcore of a fan we are of any of the games we we grew up with, we know there is a group of people who have never stopped playing that game. Right. They know every single nook and cranny of that game in and out. You will never be able to get on that level of, of passion for a certain type of game. And those are the people that you need to ask, how can we improve this? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Because they are the experts. And I think that's the main mistake that many so-called AAA studios make. Right. Whenever they make a new you know, Call of Duty or Destiny or whatever, they always try and make a game that is, of course, bigger, more, ex- more expensive and more expansive and so on. But they always make it um, as if they knew or as if they, as, as if they know better what people really want and and that's always the problem you always have fans you know a major fan outcry whenever one of these one of these big triple a games come out and the fans always proclaim that oh you should have done this instead and why are you not listening to the fans and you should do this and that and why are the loot boxes now and microtransactions and blah 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 instead of just reaching out to the fans and not just pretending to reach out and say we heard your outcry and we're now changing this you know the latest drama with Warcraft Reforged is another classic example where, yes, we did not expect this and we hear you loud and clearly, but we're not going to change it because of fan outcry. And that's, that's completely missing the point. You know, Many of these cases, the way you make a great game, a game that the fans will love, and the fans are the ones who are going to carry this game for a decade or two, you know, the, 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 the 13-year-olds who buy the game and play it for two weeks and then go back to Counter-Strike or Fortnite, they're not going to carry your game into a decade or two. The hardcore fans are. And you need to approach them and, and ask them, what is it that the hardcore really, really want? But again, you're not making a game just for them, but you need their expertise. And then you need to filter it afterwards. Because, of course, when, we, you know, when we're working a game like Kingpin, there are so many people with so many opinions, and they're all hardcore fans. Some people feel it needs to be, you know, faster and and you know more levels and more weapons, and other people no, no, it needs to be slower and more conversations and more RPG elements. And both of them are hardcore fans. So it's about taking all this info involving these people and then filtering it and pick a path. Something you said, kind of. Uh, resonated with me in that the way that modern you know AAA studios work is that it, it truly is a business decision every time they make a game like we, we have to keep putting out the new thing so that people will spend their sixty dollars every year yeah. you know to purchase it and we see the same thing in pretty much every the car industry the computer industry everything it's how industry works is that it just lives to continue to generate more and more income and 
well, that's, you know, fine. I bet business is one thing, but for the sake of the art, uh, when you're talking about something like Kingpin, like this is a yeah. game that people, you know, have been sitting on for years. And each of these games, uh, at least has a basis in something that has been appreciated as a piece of art by people for a very long time and not just as a, Oh, you know, buy the newest best thing and spend more money on it. Uh, and especially in the quake, uh, sense that that's a game that was made open source so that people could just, and people have continued to create their own, their own content based off of, you know, something that was an influence for them. So it's it's an entire art scene of like the quake mapping community. You've talked to Dump Truck before and RC, JCR, those guys like are incredible. And then you know like Bloodshot, I just recently had him on the show. I don't think it's been released as of us talking, but you know to for him the chance to work on this project with you guys is like I never thought that I would be in this position. You know, just he was just doing it because he loved it. That's that's the coolest thing about what you guys are doing, in my opinion. Well, that's the main reason anyone should make video games in the first place because yeah. they love it. And 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 to be quite frank with you, when if anyone else, especially you know large scale AAA businesses, if they they would have taken over three D realms, I think they, I don't think that they would have tried to leverage the aspects of the company that, that we do because, quite frankly, they make no sense. Like, <laughs> why take you know? Why, why take these old franchises that only a small sub-faction of people ever played or ever cared for and then put in so much work and so much effort trying to make something new out of it? But the only things that would appeal to a new crowd, you don't change those at all. You, like, you don't make it look prettier and newer. You actually make it look just as, quote-unquote, bad as it did back then. It's almost like shooting yourself in the foot. But that's also kind of missing the point why we're, why we're doing this. We're not trying to make a new EA or new Activision. We're not, quite frankly, not trying to make a you know, multi-million dollar huge business here. We're trying to make a, a, a nice little family of people who have the same passion as we, we do and make, make it just enough of a financial success so we can keep doing what we love to do. And that is basically making the games that never existed. We're, we're basically making games for ourselves. And if other people like them, that's great too. We're actually talking a bit about how, how this uh, demographic didn't exist just like five or 10 years ago. And, it, and it's basically the group of people who, first of all, were, were uh, young teenagers or early adults when you know Doom, Quake, Doom New Come and so on came out originally. Most of these people, you know, they started going to college, university, getting jobs, getting wife and kids, and so on. And then they they they've they've kind of been out of the loop for some time. You know, they they don't like like the modern Call of Duties and Counter Strikes and, and Fortnites and all these games the young young people play because they're they're out of the loop. You know, you 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 have a job now, and you have a family you have to take care of. And now you're you're you might be in your late twenties, early thirties, maybe late thirties and early forties, and you're now on the other side. You now have money in your pocket again. You're done with your education. You have a solid job. You you've had kids already. Uh, you know, maybe the kids have started school, and now you're starting to get some spare time again. And what hobbies did you have as a as a kid? 
you loved video games, but you've been out of the loop for so long. And oh well, what did you love when when you were playing games? Oh, I loved. Oh, I grew up with Quake. Where are games like Quake, anyways? When 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 I was a kid, games like Quake and Duke Nukem were the big thing, and now it's just Fortnite. This whole demographic now have games they can play. They now have Wrath, Iron Fury, Dusk, and Medieval. And that demographic did not exist a few years ago. And those are the people we're making games for. And it's not a huge group. It's not like here's a quarter of a million people. Most of these games will most likely never sell more than 100 to 150,000 copies across all platforms. But it is fine. It's it's enough for for us to be able to still make these games. So it's kind of dads making game for dads, which is super fun because in the video game industry, you now have this little subsection of a specific genre of games that can now survive because there's enough people our age who have nostalgic memories of these games who are now hungry for these type of games again. This is actually pretty fun that you bring this up, and it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because, yes, there is that generation, and they are a target audience for this type of game. Uh, but there's the other side of this coin where I'm 24. You know, I yeah. didn't grow up playing uh, these games when they came out. I was in, or, and I was a, an infant. You know, when Doom was popular. Uh, Brand Flakes, uh, who you met. You know, she's a perfect yeah. example of someone who's very young, but just is super, super passionate about this game uh, or this type of game in general. And I think that's happening more and more. And it's not just because of, let's just say, the quality or just because it's got a, a nostalgic feel. It's also that uh, a lot of kids these days are frustrated by the way that the game industry treats them. It's like, you know, yeah. if it's $60 for this game or 20 bucks for this game or or people that come up and see, you know, a game like kingpin or a game like iron fury it it just looks different it's like whoa that's totally different than what i'm used to seeing uh and then they just hop into it and then they go full monty with it or they're raised by one of those dads that you're talking about absolutely and and that's a really cool thing about this like you have those dads who are now you know maybe they're in their 40s maybe they're in their 50s and they either have kids now who they they can teach you know this is the game i used to love when i was a kid and then they can kind of influence these kids so when they grow up you know like brand they 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 become big fans of this like her and and her dad share this passion together most definitely because of him and then there's of course the a group like like yourself who who have and, and that must be fantastic growing up in in a games industry where where there was so much before you were born that you can dive into. And there was so much when you were a kid that you couldn't play or didn't know about until later. Now you have all this history that you can dive into. And when you dive into the history, it's, it's not like watching, you know, black and white movies. It, 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 it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you wish, if you've never seen, you know, Terminator two or aliens and you wish, you know, you were shown it today and you realized, holy cow, not only are these movies better than mostly anything I've seen today, they're like 30 years old. How is that even possible? It's like being in a time machine sometimes. Man. Exactly. I get to, if I really sit down with it, you know, I, to boot up 
an old version of like Doom or, or any any of these games. For me, it's like I get to with a lot of extra comfort that wasn't there before experience it exactly, you know, as other people experienced it in a different time. Yeah. You know, and that, that must be that must be amazing. That must be amazing. And I wish there were so many more younger gamers who did that. I have a uh, I have a stepsister who has two sons and they're I think they're they're 12 and 15. Yeah. And they are they are hardcore gamers. Apparently what they are is considered hardcore gamers today. They both have, you know, a gaming chair, ultra wide monitor and all you could ever want. And they only play Counter-Strike and Fortnite. And it's like they have no idea anything else even exists. And they're not even interested in knowing that anything else exists. Like when I was a kid, I remember, sure, Counter-Strike came out. Everyone played that for, you know, a few months. And then another game came out and another game and another game. And people kept reading magazines and traded games in the schoolyard and talked about all the latest, newest things. And there were there were never a case of someone saying like no i'm just i'm just, i stopped i'm just, i'm just playing counter strike now it was quite the opposite you wanted to always be on the forefront and play the latest and the newest and and keep exploring new titles and you were the cool kid if you could you know come in the schoolyard and say hey have you played chasm the rift and you were like what's that well it's this yeah. quick type game and it's not like that anymore now it's it's kind of like you have you're playing, you're playing Fortnite and you're playing Counter-Strike and nothing else. What happens when you open Steam to play Counter-Strike? Are you not even curious about you know, the, the 100,000 games that are just out there waiting for you? Do you ever look at the storefront? That's, that's my main problem nowadays. And sometimes there are people like yourself who decide, you know what, I actually want to go back and, and play these games that I've heard so much about. And then you become fans of them. Well, I, I think this is a, an appropriate time to kind of take it in a different direction with the conversation because uh, you have this reputation, right, for being, I don't want to insult you, but kind of a giant nerd when it comes to these older games and just knowing every little detail about them. So, Oh, that, that's not an insult at all. That's 100% accurate. <laughs> I didn't think you would take it that way. But with that said, uh, you having acquired, you know, 3D Realms and all of its, you know, intellectual property. And there's so much there, you know, there's a bajillion things that you can now kind of like probably move forward with or like expand upon. And what are some of these things that like you remember playing early on and that set you on this career path? And now that you have the tools to mess around, what do you see yourself doing with it? Well, unfortunately, 3D Realms um, did not own as much anymore as we thought they would when we took over. That was not the main reason for, for taking over, but but they were actually pretty smart back in the day. So what what they did was that most of the IP that was developed in Tree Realms, and I think they, they released over 40 different games, most of the games were actually owned by the individual people who made them. So, you know, Major Striker was Alan Blom's game, and he owned the IP for Major Striker. Um, so, so each of the games that were made back in the day at Apogee before they changed their names to 3D Realms were in almost every case by the individuals that you know helped the production. Um, but there were, of course, the, the larger games like Duke 3D, Shadow, Prey, 
Max Payne, and all those titles were sold off long long before we came aboard. But but I think the the question still stands: like which of these games and how did they inspire us to do what we're doing now? And when I was a kid, the very very first time I ever played on a PC was when I was probably six years old and my dad brought home an IBM compatible computer and Olivetti and he had this little stack of floppy disks and it was a stack of floppy disks he bought in uh, in like the Danish version of Walmart you could buy these stacks of, of like 10 floppy disks and they would have shareware games on them because back then internet was very expensive and yeah so you know supermarkets like this they just sold shareware on floppy disks and i remember i sat down with him and he showed me put in the floppy disk and follow the instructions and that game was commander keen and the next game was duke nukem one and duke nukem two and wacky wheels cosmo biomenace major striker it was just all apogee games and the only thing i i noticed was that okay all Games have the same like little intro sequence, mm. and the, the very fun story that connects to this is that my partner today, Mike, Mike, when he was a kid, uh, his dad had a company which would download these shareware demos off BBS, which was the precursor to internet, and he would put them on floppy disks and sell them in these little buckets of ten floppy disks each two supermarkets so he was actually in like his his job as a kid at this point he was like eight or nine he would after school come home and then help package these games which my dad would then buy and install together with me so we had no idea that we both started our careers in games with apogee games being influenced by them in some way and that's the crazy thing like i still to this day when I see 3D Realms and what we're doing now, it, it feels unreal that that the whole reason that I, like what has shaped my entire life, uh, I'm, I'm now running this company. And it, it feels like pure luck, even though every step of my career up until that point has kind of been going towards that. You know, my very first game was, I wanted to remake Duke Nukem 3D and I want to make it into a triple A thing and I want to do everything it takes to get there. That that was the whole thing that started it. And then going all the way up to where we are now, uh, I think is a result of that. And uh, and yeah, that that whole thing started with the floppy disks, the little 10-pack floppy disks as as a kit that my, my dad bought for me for, for his first computer. I still have some photos laying around of... Uh, of me sitting in front of the computer playing Duke Nukem 1 and 2. And it's fun thinking back that while I was sitting there as a six-year-old, Scott Miller, who's still a huge part of the company, and I talk to Scott every day, and we plan and strategize all the time about games to do. At that point, he was in Dallas, in their offices, packing Duke Nukem games and putting it out there in the world while him and his team were working on Duke Nukem 3D. It, it, it's just crazy to think about. And what happened between that boy and the you now who, you know, is the owner of these companies and everything? Like, what was your, how did that influence your career path? And like, as you went on that journey, you know, what did you pick up along the way? 
Well, I, th- I think what what I quickly realized is the most important thing of working with games and picking that as your career is that you're you're very very interested in video games and you know your history. You've played through so many different games and you've analyzed them even subconsciously. You've analyzed every single aspect of these games. You know what is a good game, what's a bad game, and why, without actually knowing why you know it. Um, basically, basically developing a taste. Um, I never thought that that games could be a career path. I was, God, I was even like 25. I was 25 when it truly became a career path for me. But just a few years before that, I I still had no idea that this was ever going to be a career path because... Usually, when you talk about making games, people expect you to, you know, are you a programmer? No, I don't know how to program. Are, are you a designer? No, not really. Do you know how to do models and textures and levels? And and I knew enough about, like, I did not know how to make 3D model. But I did know what was a shitty and a good-looking 3D model. I did not know how to make textures. But I did know this is an octane texture, this is a good texture. And all these things came with just messing around with modding for games and, and just being very, very interested in games. But I couldn't make it myself. And I knew this is a good map and this is a bad map. But I can't make it myself. I just know this is why this is a good map because of the flow and the direction and so on. And I know this why this is a bad map. And I think that's the most important. It's knowing how things are put together without actually being able to do it yourself. Um, and that's how I, I, I ended up working with games. I, I, I actually had a little bit of experience with, with levels. That's what I picked up on. You know, there's always some skill set in games that someone picks up on. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you, know, you, you have a little bit of art background. Maybe you're good at drawing. Then maybe you start picking up on making textures. Or maybe you're you you like making maps or levels for games as a kid, and then you start picking a little bit up on level design. And for me, making levels was what I picked up on, even though I was nowhere nowhere even nearly as close and as good as anyone uh, who was making maps consistently for any of these games. I was just a kid. But what I did was all right. I, I know a little bit of level, and I know how everything else is put together. I just can't do it. So let's use that to to my fullest extent. And then when I was, I think I was 23 or 24, I sat down, found a group of people who I knew, okay, this guy is a good modeler. This guy is a good animator. This guy is a good visual effects guy. And I asked all of them, you know what? I would love to do a remake of Duke 3D. Here's the complete plan of it. I have some management experience from university and, and this is how the whole thing will be put together. And they could see that that in my planning, it was competently put together. I just needed the people who could help me get there. And then I managed to convince them. And then we started working on this Duke Nukem Reloaded thing. And that, that became my way in. And I, I think that job that I, at that point, created for myself is what you, what you nowadays would traditionally call um, a combination between creative director, game director, or producer. That's not in any way remotely close to what I thought you were going to say. Like it's, it's so interesting <laughs> how different people kind of arrive at this stuff. 
but that yeah. project, like what was the experience? Cause it didn't it get canceled uh, or like shut down at a certain point. So we actually canceled it ourselves. It, it was oh. very tricky. So, so when, when I, uh, when I presented this project to Gearbox, because they owned the IP at this point, I showed them some screenshots and, and told them what we were doing. And it was also gaining a ton of traction online. This was kind of the very, very first first thing that initiated this entire wave of retro shooters. Um, Duke Nukem Reloader was the first. After that, we did Rise of the Triad, which was the first real retro shooter in, in this retro shooter renaissance. And then I think Strafe was the one that came after it. And then the yeah. whole thing exploded. But but Duke Reloaded was the thing that that kicked the whole thing off. And and yeah, at that point, we actually got an, uh, what's called a non-commercial license. So we got a real license from Gearbox saying, we approve, you can make this game, but you can never sell it. And that was fine with us. You know, we did, This was a fan hobby project, first and foremost. So I think roughly six months later, and this was before Duke Nukem had been released. So at this point, everyone thought that Duke Nukem Forever, especially Gearbox, that this is going to be you know, a huge success. It's one of the most anticipated games of all times, 14 years. It's going to be amazing. And here are these guys making this little Duke Nukem remake thing in Unreal Engine 3. Ah, let's just see how that goes. So six months later, I withdraw every single penny I have, sell everything I own, and I spent that on going to the United States for the first time because I wanted to show Gearbox in person what it, what it was that we have created. So I did that. And it was a huge, huge step for me. You know, this is basically it. Uh, and I didn't know what, what to expect because this was a non-commercial product. It's not like, what, what are they going to say? Oh, it looks great. Carry on. Like, right. but, but I think deep inside, my hope was that they're going to realize that this is truly something special. And because of that, they're going to allow us to make it into something much bigger uh, and then maybe sell it someday. Maybe put it on Steam. Who knows? And I, I went to visit Gearbox and, and I actually sat down. First, I got, I got to sit down with the Duke Nukem Forever team. And these were all the guys that 3D Realms had laid, laid off a few, uh, a few years before. And that was amazing. They were just blown away. Because again, Duke Nukem Forever, it still used the old Unreal Engine 1 with some improvements. Um, and we were using basically what was high-end next-gen engine stuff here. We were using Unreal Engine 3 at the time. Uh, so, so our stuff just looked absolutely crazy. And we got so much good advice, so much good feedback. They even asked us, oh, wow, how did you make that? And how did you make this? And man, I wish we had these tools. Of course, we were making a next-gen title here. Unfortunately, we couldn't see anything for Duke Forever, but that was, you know, that was fine. We knew that that was all still top secret. Then we met with Randy, and uh, and and he was for the most time he you know he was interested. I looked at it, but I could also see that there's something quite off here. And then that was it. I wasn't told anything. I was just asked to you know thank you for coming and have a good one. So when I came back, I had this whole team of Duke Reloaded. We were almost forty people working on. on on this project and it was the first project for many people for instance the lead composer at cd project red who did 
many of the main tracks for The Witcher 3 and, of course, for uh, uh, the lead composer of all the music for Cyberpunk. This was his first gig. Big shot in, in the games industry nowadays. We actually let him go. So, Marcin Slivovich. Anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's the composer on CD Projekt Great. A huge big shot. And at and, and that point, Duke Reloaded was his first project. We let him go because there was this young kid who was playing in a heavy metal band who, who sent us a, a demo of the Duke Nukem theme that he had recorded with his guitar because he wanted to be part of the project. And that was Andrew Halshold. And, and his, his rendition of the Duke theme was just slightly better than Marcin's rendition. So, and we kind of had to pick one, so we went with Andrew. Uh, so, but, but a lot of people had their start on this. Um, there's a uh, guy, I think it's called Frank, Frank Sen, who also worked on this as his first project. Um, there's a ton of people who, who got their career start with Duke Nukem Reloaded. But anyways, I came back, all these people were waiting for some answer. Gearbox say, holy cow, are we... You know, is it okay? Can we? Sh- because we couldn't show anything from the game either. We had like eight months of work already. We couldn't show anything. We couldn't put out a screenshot, and and we 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 had to ask for permission because otherwise, if we just put it out there, and but our project is free, you know, they they wanted to obviously control the flow of PR and marketing materials of Duke Nukem games, obviously. And I came back and said, I I have nothing. I have no idea. So I sent them a long email, asked them, hey, what, what's, what's going on here? Can we share something from Duke Reloaded? Can we show videos, out a demo? Can we do anything? And the response we got was that we can't really do, they would prefer us not to do anything before Duke Nukem Forever is out. But once Duke Forever is out, we can return you know, to discuss what we can release and what we can put out and so on. And obviously because they don't want any of our bus to interfere with the bus of Duke Nukem forever. And that was all fine, but we also had to tell them if we have no clear, clear idea of when we can show something, even if we can show something, what if Duke forever becomes a huge flop? Like we, we have no idea, but there's no clear answer. If all of all what we're doing right now is just a waste of time, if we can never ever show it to anyone, what then? So at that point, we we told Gearbox that you know what we we have to we have to put this on hold. We have to stop until Duke Forever is out, and then you guys have to tell us if you want us to continue or not. And we all know the story. Duke Forever came out. It unfortunately didn't turn out as as everyone hoped. And yeah, that was the death of of Duke Reloaded as well. But it was ourselves who cancelled it, basically. But but we didn't really have another choice. So when you see a project like look at the way that Valve handled Black Mesa, like does that kind yeah. of ring a bell for you? That oh god, I, I I wish this happened. Yeah, and I kind of feel that is what Gearbox. Um, I think that that was what they were going for. They were hoping that, okay, this is going to be the Black Mesa of Duke Nukem 3D. But they had the problem that that this game, Duke Forever, is just on the horizon. And we just bought the IP and everything else. 
especially something that at that point looked better than Duke Forever, we can't have that leak out there. We can't have that be released while we're trying to actually sell a product here. So let's push it all aside and wait until after Duke Forever. I wish that that we we could have gotten back and, and still done this. And and I think that at the time, you know, after Duke Forever and enough time had passed, we could probably have gotten back and, and you know, we still have the license. We we could still go back and do it. But at this point, we were far into the development of Rise of the Triad. At this point, we were an established studio. We were no longer just fans working on hobby projects. We were actually funded. We, we, we had our salaries. We had a job here. So at this point, in order to go back and ask all these people, hey, let's work on Duke Nukem again. And by the way, let's stop paying you. Like, that, that's not viable. At this point, everything changed into now we actually need food on our table. We need to pay our our rent. And then and if we're gonna go back and make like a Duke reloaded, it has to be a commercial license. Because at this point we were no longer just hobbyists wanting to get into the games industry. We were making games for a living with Rise of the Triad and later Bombshell and Red Rogers and so on. So again, they have said publicly a few times since then that well the license is still there they can still make do you can reload it sure we could and then we could go bankrupt while doing it because <laughs> who who's going to pay the bills right <laughs> so that's the difference now from you know a 23 year old to a 33 year old that's really a lot of passion to put into something like that man like that's i think that's what's so special about you in general is just it's clear how much you love what you do and how much you care about the quality of the product and not just turning over a, a profit. Like, well, thank you for thank you for saying that. It's one of those things that I I just can't stop it. It's yeah. It's um, the reason I started this Duke Nukem thing in the first place was to see what Duke Nukem 3D, one of my favorite games, what it could look like if it was a brand new game. At this point, I think. Um, Halo Anniversary had just come out and showed, wow, this is what Halo looks like if it was modern with new graphics. And and I just really wanted to play that and no one was making it. And my only thought was, if no one is making it, I'm going to, and I'm going to take it as far as I can and see if it, it can be possible. And in in many cases, you just hit that brick wall at some point where I can't take it further now, because if I do that, I'm going to get sued or I'll go bankrupt or whatever the reason is. And and I applaud Valve for doing what, what they're doing. It's almost like a case where it feels like they care so little. And that's why they haven't done, you know, their Duke forever, which will be Half-Life 3. Uh, and, and that's why they let, like the guys who did Black Mesa, they even let them sell it on the store. Of yeah, course. Well, why not? You know, they only stand to gain. From more you, people playing Half Life, yeah, yeah. They, they they spent they what like spent fourteen years, fifteen years work on this thing. Of course, man, give these guys a break. Let them make money off of this thing. It's the closest thing anyone is ever going to get anyway to some kind of Half Life three. So I, I applaud Valve for 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 doing that, and 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 that is one of the things with uh, with bringing back three D realms and running Slipgate Ironworks. You know, when whenever we do a new thing like Wrath or Iron Fury or whatever the future uh, holds for us, 
we want to make sure that we're, we're never going to step in and tell people, no, you can't do that. You can't make this fan mod or fan thing worth Iron Fury or Wrath. Of course you can. Because in the end, no matter how much fan stuff that gets made and how good it is, it's always going to benefit the core game. If a mod came out for Iron Fury that was prettier and grander and, you know, any, everything that Iron Fury fans wanted as a sequel for Iron Fury, but made by a group of modders and fans, that would only add value to Iron Fury. And it would add value to Iron Fury fans. And everyone would absolutely love it. I think that's, that's the approach you have to take when looking at people making something as a hobby uh, because of your product. These guys are fans. They're helping you make this thing into something that's larger than life. And every time you try and put a stop to that, you're basically telling your fans that, you know what, being a fan of our game is not going to be as cool as being a fan of our competitor, yeah, like Half-Life. Making a game today and preventing the community of people from modifying it and you know doing whatever they want with it is literally shooting in your yourself in the foot years down the line yeah. when someone wants to make something like wrath because then there's not this wealth of people who are super passionate and expert mappers and expert uh, quake c you know developers and all this stuff absolutely like like look look at look at the people making wrath or, yes. or look at the people making iron fury who would never have gained the skills that they have now if it wasn't for duke 3d and and, and imagine if back then when Duke 3D came out, if we told people, no, you can't make maps and mods for this, or, or no, we own all the maps and mods you make. It's ours. Here's like our, our insane you know, terms of conditions. And imagine if we did that and we actively discouraged people to make all these things. There's a reason that, that there are hundreds of first-person shooters that have, has come out the, the past 10 years who, like, they have no following. How big of a following does any of the Call of Duty games have except for the, the last couple? Because there's no modding support. And then you have the few games that are that have done that. You know, you have you know the Quakes and the Duke Nukems and, and and so forward. And all of these games still exist today. They still have a following, they still have a passionate community. And even Bethesda is doing it with some of the games. They had the creation kit with something like Skyrim. Look at how many mods there are for Skyrim still. These things make people keep your game alive for decades. And who wouldn't want that? That's what I don't get. There's so few games that do this. And, and many of the reasons when you hear you know, new modern games, imagine a game like Overwatch. Imagine if you could make your own maps and mods for Overwatch and just you know, open the floodgates, just make people go crazy with it. Imagine how huge of a following it would have compared to what it has now. But it hasn't because, well, what about the loot boxes and what about the microtransactions? And we also want to, what about cheaters online and competitiveness? And I'm like, fuck all that shit. Your game is going to be dead when the next thing comes out. I don't care anymore. But if you opened up the floodgates, if you let everyone make whatever game and see your game as this creative platform, the game will exist forever. And, And I just don't get why they don't do it. But I do understand when you look at, you know, <laughs> the board of directors and they're talking about the latest fiscal year and, and how to increase the stock price. All they're thinking about is how do we add 
microtransactions in these different places so we can encourage people to spend more money on our product rather than than securing long, longevity in, right. in, in the game itself. Or with an ongoing project like like Quake Champions, you know, yeah, it's like they have to figure out a way to keep money flowing into this game, and that's that's another scary situation too. I think it'll take care of itself. Look look at look at Skyrim. Yeah, people keep buying it every time the new platform. Well, I'm, I'll buy Skyrim again, I guess. I don't know people that own it on five different systems. You know, like, like yeah, PC, and, and, and then you buy it for Switch and you play it for a few hours. I already finished this like ten times. Yeah. That's how they turned that. They 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 got the same end result. You know, how do we turn our game into a service where people buy the game multiple times? You know, you want to make sure that a customer doesn't just spend sixty dollars on your game. That's what you know the EAs and Blizzards of this world are thinking. We want each customer to spend in the lifetime of the game, maybe you know two three hundred dollars. And how do we do that? Well, microtransactions and. You know, here's a new skin and a new hat and a new gun and so on. Or you can do what Bethesda does. And like, hey, let's just release Skyrim, $60, and then make all the modding tools available. And then, you know, every year or two, we'll just re-release the game again. And because we have modding tools and people are, are keep making content for our game, the game will get more and more fans. The, the entire community and demographic of Skyrim will grow. And every single time we sell the game again or put it on sale or release it for a new platform, more and more people will buy it again and again and again. And it's kind of the same end result. But in Skyrim's case, it's an end result based on massive interest of creating things for your game rather than let's try and kind of scam people into buying things they don't really need. And then a month or two, they're like, how the hell did I spend $200 on this game? Oh, shit. Did I buy that many skins and hats? And you know, It's the two different approaches. And the second approach, the modding approach, freeing up the level design tools. I don't know why people are not doing that anymore. But that's one of our mantras. That's something we're going to do with every single game we release in as long as I'm part of this comedy. Yeah, you... You and Dave Oshry and actually Andrew Holschel has just managed to kind of weasel his way into, you know, having his hand in both pots, but have created these brands, right? With 3D Realms and with, you know, Slipgate and everything. The the creative people that we can kind of assume are going to be associated with your projects. You've created a brand that people are just going to buy every game that that brand is on now, because it's like, we can trust you to turn out the kind of thing that we want. And that's, I think, even even more valuable sometimes than selling the same game over and over and over again on different platforms. It's just like, uh, I, I can guarantee good, high-quality content out of this brand, which is very hard to do. Well, I, I also think it, it's one of those beautiful things that differentiates, you know, the, the uh, you can kind of call it the, the trifecta. You have the, uh, you know, the new blood, the three realms, Slipgate, and then you have the the night dives. Yeah, and night dive too, for sure. Exactly, and and we all kind of stem from the same place. Like first game, Dave was a fan of Duke Reloaded. He was one of our biggest fans, and then when we started writing to try it, he became an investor. He had some money to spare, and then he became an investor, and that that was his gateway. That's also how he met everyone involved. That project was the very first game, Rise of the Triad, that that. Um, that Andrew commercially worked on. 
uh, it was the first game that Leon and Simon worked on. Who after that, you know, made I made Evil. Like that whole that game that project uh, that spun out of Do Reloaded spun into so many new yes, game development studios. Because you all were passionate about something that you could mess around with and. Exactly. Even though it was a failed project, you or you know, we, we wouldn't even call it a failure because it led to all of this. That one exactly. thing. And and I would say now we're all doing different things. Yeah. And I think if you look at New Blood, so New Blood, I, I would call New Blood for uh, as, as a uh, it's a creative madness. At, at New Blood, they're just making new ideas all the time, new crazy ideas. And just quickly, you know, whipping up a cool prototype, sharing the whole process online with everyone, getting as much feedback as possible, and trying to get as much fun into this core idea as possible. Um, what we do at 3D Realms is, is kind of different. Uh, I love the approach that New Blood takes because it, it's kind of the approach where you get very quirky and very unique games. Yeah. They're not necessarily the prettiest or not necessarily the ones that has you know, uh, a, a certain type of, uh, you know, okay, this is clearly the, the, the same art style as this game that was legendary or they have this artist on or something like that. It's, n- it's much more of a let's try and make it insanely fun and let's just try and like, if any crazy idea comes up, hey, let's just try it and put it out on our early access and see what people think. And it's this continuous evolving process of making the game the best possible version of itself. Um, what we do at 3D Realms is, okay, let, let's try and do a completely different approach and let's try and do the, the hardcore, nerdy, enthusiast approach. You know, it, it's kind of like when, when we make a game like Iron Fury and Wrath, it's more like, okay, let's try and carefully restore this old veteran car from the 60s. And we want to make sure that every single inch of paint is as accurate and pixel perfect as it was back then and it has to feel like when you step into the 60s car you there's no like you literally think you're back in time but everything is just slightly nicer just feels better to drive much better than it back then it's like best of both worlds it's new but it's old but it's better than old it's more refined it's like 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 a really good refined wine and and there's room for both. That's the, that's the great thing here. We're not trying to do what New Blood is doing, and New Blood is not trying to do what we're doing. And all these games can exist together. You can decide, you know what, I, I, sometimes myself, I just want to play Dusk because right now I just want to go at, at 120 miles per hour and just blast through everything and do backflips in the air. That, that's what I want to do right now. And the next day, you know what, now I want to... I, I want to go secret hunt and I want to look at all these beautiful sprite and pixel art. And I know that every single pixel they manually painted in of these characters and iron fury. Cause now that's my, that's my thing. And then you can dive right into something like the successor to heretic. I want to play a medieval and I want to see all these wondrous, fantastic sculptures and buildings. And, and, you know, I want to go from medieval castles to Egyptian culture. I want to, experience all of that with huge magic magical weapons so like there's something for everyone but we're not trying directly to compete and do the same thing and that's what i think is so magical about how all of us came from the same place we all all came from duke nukem reloaded 
uh, and Rise of the Triad, and then kind of spun out and kind of figure out, okay, what is it we're really good at here? Yeah. And Medieval, you know, Simon and, and Leon, what they're experts in is level design. And they're they're so good at level design that Rise of the Triad, they were the two leading level designers on that project. The fact that Rise of the Triad was still kind of in, you know, sort of realistic world, kind of like World War II type, even though it didn't take place during World War II, almost, that almost was too limiting for them. And with a medieval, they get to take all of that away and just focus on level design 100%. doesn't matter if this shape doesn't fit here in, in a real life world. It doesn't matter if you can't have verticality here or flipping gravity or whatever. They just focused 100% on level design. Let's make the coolest levels we can. And then we figure out what's setting there in afterwards. So that, that is taking the skills they developed develop during Rise of the Triad and then just go all in with them. And the same thing happened with, with Dave Oshry and, and of course, uh, Dave Szymanski with, with, with Dusk. Um, you know, let's just try and make the most insane, fast, crazy first-person shooter. And let's take all the great ideas and shove them all in there, but make them the best possible version of themselves. And you, you get this masterpiece. It's one of the best shooters ever made. And, and, and that's really cool. And, you know, kind of what connects all of it is Andrew <laughs> in some weird way. Because Andrew was nice enough. Like after Rise of the Triad, you know, he kept working with us and we did Bombshell and Red Rogers together. And then he, he was asking me, hey, Fred, is it okay if I maybe go make this? This for Dave. He asked about, you know, this is a first person shooter and he's doing that with some guys. I'm like, yeah, fuck yes. Come on. That, that would be amazing. Holy cow. And then Dusk came out. And then he did for a medieval. And then we asked him, hey, would you like to maybe come back and do something with Wrath? And he was like, yes, absolutely. I'd love to. And so we, we all kind of share and and evolve this one guy that that we all have this shared history with. And every single project he gets involved with he'll learn something new because it oh this is a brand new thing completely different like in red rogers he had to do synth wave yeah which is completely different from anything else so yeah this this whole story has been absolutely insane and i'm so happy to see that that we we're all being successful with this in in each of our own ways and we have found our own paths into the game industry it's so interesting, like how he is kind of at the center of his own, like this little universe of like the Andrew Holschultz star system, really. Because <laughs> the truth is that this, this podcast really benefited from his generosity. Like he agreed to do an interview with me when I really didn't have anything to show, you know, like I'd, I hadn't been doing it for very long, but I was just super enthusiastic and I showed up at QuakeCon. He said yes. And we fucked up with the audio recording while we did that. And then he agreed to do it again. <laughs> oh god and then you know so when i published that i can't tell you how many people i've talked to or like reached out to and asked them like would you like to come on the show and i bet you anything it was when they saw his name is what made them say yes and i know that to yeah. be true with several of them like the developers of games that he personally worked on have said well i didn't really think i was going to do it but when i saw his name i was like okay i can trust this guy if andrew yeah. likes this guy then i like you know so that's amazing dude it's really awesome to see how how he's from the beginning, you know, growing, basically just just playing in a band with his friends, mm-hmm. to to slowly starting to kind of make music for things. 
and 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 yeah, I'm I'm really happy to see how how he has evolved his skills, and now he's man, he's doing triple A stuff now. Now he kind of has to pick and choose, you know, which which huge game do I want to do so I can still have a tiny little bit of time for the small guys because now we're the small guys. We're still small. We're still making small games, and well, at least in terms of of you know teams, we're not like hundred man making all of these games. Um, but those are the teams he has to pick between. Do I want to make the next big thing with a like a hundred or two hundred man AAA game, and how can I then get still time to make games with my friends? I don't want to take up your whole day, man. We've been talking <laughs> for a while now, so I'll ask you a couple more questions and uh, sure. You can decide when you want to cut it off yourself too. I got a, a few of your like biggest fans to write in some questions, so I'll ask a few of them too. Uh, one of them being uh, games that are 25 years old are still relevant today. Do you think that games developed in 2020 will still be relevant in 2045? And uh, to tack on to that, if so, which ones will they be and what qualities about them make them so? Yeah, th- this is this is the tough part. And I think they share they share a lot with with movies. I don't think I don't think they will. Honestly, Maybe a few select, but God, it's been a long time. Witcher 3 will. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with what we discussed before, um, the openness for for the community to make mods and maps and, and dive into the game so they can create a new community which can you know, make sure the game has, has a longer lifespan. But it also has to be for a game that is tremendously successful and almost genre uh, revolutionary and we rarely see those games anymore and we rarely see it with movies as well movies have existed just a bit longer than games (laughs) maybe for a few decades longer like popular movies so therefore we can see some of the trends of movies and the funny thing is if you go 10 years back and you look at at the classics you're thinking of the, of the classics from the 80s and 90s. You're not thinking 2000s or 2010s movies as the classics. And even those few titles that, when it comes out, you're completely captivated by it. And you think, okay, this thing is the next Star Wars. Like when you see Avengers Endgame, Infinity War, like those gigantic movies that makes a billion dollars. And then a few months later, you kind of forgot about it. But you still remember Star Wars. And Star Wars still had this impact on you. And I simply think that right now, in terms of the video game industry, we have seen almost everything there is to see of huge revolutionary types of games. And everything else that comes out is kind of a a refinement of that. And therefore, I don't think that the the titles that kids are going to look back at in 20 years from now I don't think there are going to be games that come out in 10 years. I think they're still going to look back at The Witcher 3 or Cyberpunk or Deus Ex or Quake or Doom or Warcraft or Starcraft or whatever, because those games define the genre. I don't think they're going to look back at uh, at Fortnite because people are not really looking back at PUBG, uh, even though Fortnite is, here's a stylized version of PUBG. I think those trend games are just going to die off um i don't think there's going to be another counter-strike that's a good way of saying it 
even though there are tons of games that are better than Counter-Strike, if you're trying, if you're trying to make the thing that Counter-Strike tried to be when it came out, you know, Rainbow Six Siege, that is basically Counter-Strike 2020. If you, if Counter-Strike didn't exist, hey, let's make a counter-terrorist type first person jury, you would make Rainbow Six Siege. And it's a better game in almost every aspect. But no one's going to remember it in five years from now, and everyone is still going to play Counter-Strike. I do want to ask a little bit about Ghost Runner. What are you guys looking at as far as its release, and what can we kind of expect? Because all we've got is kind of just, you know, the trailers, and like it looks like yeah. it's pretty high-end graphic-wise. Uh, Cyberpunk aspect of it kind of scares me because of like the release of Cyberpunk coming out soon, too. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so... That's not to say it won't be amazing. I'm just curious, like, what can you tell us to sell us on this uh, this new game? Well, Ghost Runner is a very weird example. We, it's not a game that we uh, we picked up or we didn't approach these guys because this is a very very expensive game with you know probably around a hundred people involved. I want to point out that every game I've asked you about, you said, "Oh, that's a weird example," because all of yeah, it, it's all it's all weird examples. This was actually a case of of. Uh, of the the guys making the game reaching out to us at Gamescom and yeah. showing it to us, they had just announced it and, and they showed it to us. Uh, we were showing off Wrath, and you know, if you see Wrath and Ghost Runner, it's like day and night. It's com- completely different, yeah. both in style and budget and so on. And they asked us, "Hey, would you guys help consult on Ghost Runner in some way?" And uh, I told them I'd, I'd love to sit down and take a look at the game and and discuss it with with our team here at, at Slipgate, our development studio. So we sat down and uh, evaluated the game. And what was weird about Ghost Runner when we played it was this really feels like a three D realms game. This feels like this feels like what a new Shadow Warrior game, Prey Two. This has so many things going for it that. If we can steer it to slightly in in in, in another direction and and fine tune it, this could be become something truly special. Um, so we decided to jump on board. So for Ghost Runner, so Three D Realms are the, the producer distributor. We're gonna make big boxes and so on, just like we did with Iron Fury and, and we're gonna do with Wrath. And then uh, Slipgate is co-developing. So I'm the production manager and producer on the game. And then we have our level design, uh, level designers, programmers, and so on, working on different aspects of the game. Right. And um, together with the team at One More Level, which is a Polish game developer, there are around 30 to 40 people over there also working on the game. So we're working on this together and trying to make it the best game possible. But yeah, so to sell you on Ghost Runner, <clears throat> imagine a, uh, a cyberpunk style first person hotline. It doesn't really look like that, I'm but that's that's basically what it is. It is so. What we wanted to make sure that like the the feel and the fast pacedness and the snappiness of the movement had to be extremely satisfying. So in the game, no matter which wall you you jump to, you instantly run on it. No matter which ledge you touch, you instantly jump up on it. The movement in the game feels so free and so much fun. You are so agile in this game, and it, a bit like. Um, mirror sets on steroids and then it's a, a one shot or one slice kill game every enemy dies with one slice with your sword but you also die by getting hit once 
You can go into bullet time in midair to avoid bullets while they they fly at you. Um, but it's basically a, a, a tactical chess-type game. There's there's checkpoints every 10 or so seconds. And you get to an area, you, you quickly analyze, okay, I have these enemies, I have these abilities I can use. Okay, now I run. And while you run, they start shooting at you. You quickly dash to the side. You run on the wall. You take out your, your grappling hook. You grab onto something. You fly over them. Now you go in for the attack. And you have to do this really quickly and really analytical and use all of your different abilities to slow down time or, or steal uh, weapons for enemies or stun them in the air and so on to quickly eliminate all the, all the enemies in this area. It might be three, four, five different kinds. Bam. And if you get hit once, you just instantly start back at your checkpoint. It happens basically dead start. You start instantly, just like Hotline Miami. So it's just a continuous loop of trial and error and trying to perfect this speed running type thing. So it's very, very different than what people might think when they see the trailer. Because in the trailer, it looks like, oh, it's like a Deus Ex, Cyberpunk yeah. 2077 type thing. And it's really not. It's something extremely fast-paced, more like, you know, we call it a first-person slicer. Um, kind of entry into AAA-ish type games since well, since we worked on Bombshell, which was a bomb. And before that, it was Prey. So, yeah, we're super excited about it. Bombshell had an amazing soundtrack, though. Oh, it's God, man. This is... Just, I listened to it yesterday. <laughs> I think it's some of Andrew's best work. Yeah. No, the, the check's in the mail, dude. I kind of, kind of think you've just turned me <laughs> around completely. So keep, let's let, let's sound clip that and replace the trailer with you selling the game. Vocal. <laughs> I, I guess I've only one more question for you, unless you have anything else you kind of want to just dig into or sure plug before. Okay, far away. This is from Brand Flakes and her pops. What is your oldest piece of game memorabilia that you obtained? <laughs> well, there, there's two kinds of old memorabilia. There's old as in I, I saved this from when I was young. And then there's old as you take over the Three Realms warehouse and it's just full of gold. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the two kind of old. And to start with the first one, my own old memorabilia. Um, I got my first console when I was five. So one year before I ever touched or saw a pc i got my nes and with my nes i got my copy of super mario brothers 3 and that uh, i still have on my shelf i still play it that's probably my my oldest memorabilia that i got at that time because i don't think i could have gotten anything when i was four or three because i just could barely understand what games were um and then there's in terms of, of actual memorabilia like that I acquired for my collection throughout the years. And, and, and I've built up quite a large collection of primarily sealed uh, PC games. That's been my, my, my huge obsession, you know, pretty much finding every single PC game that I loved as a kid or I could never afford as a kid and then obtaining mint condition sealed copies of them. Um, and of course, when when you take over 3D Realms, you get your hands on some insane shit. Um, everything from unreleased prototype games to, you know, f here's a stack of copies of like Wolfenstein 3D all sealed. And you know that 
these are impossible to find anywhere. I, I, there's so many that that they had left over. I think if I had to pick one particularly cool thing, it would have to be. It's actually not something I got from the from the Freedom uh, Storages. It's actually something my good friend Robert Atkins gave me. So Robert Atkins was an art director at 3D Realms. He was a co-founder at Ritual. His main piece of work was uh, was the Sin IP. He developed you know Sin and the characters and so on, and was a co-owner of Ritual back in the day. Um, the first time I met him in Dallas, he uh, he gave me a prototype version of the Duke Nukem 3D uh, box and jewel case. And the cool thing is, first of all, the box was a prototype version of, of the big, big box that has a different screenshots on the side that were slightly less or more not suitable for work, which meant that they had to, they, they couldn't use, there were nudity and yeah, they had to change them. And the other thing was the actual Jewel case. The actual jewel case was really cool. They they didn't use it in the final product because it was too expensive. But what it had is it had a 3D hologram jewel case where it would be the so so when you look straight at it, it's the um the Duke Nukem 3D cover art. And then when you flip it slowly, it kind of transforms into the Cycloid Emperor. And you can flip it back and forth, and it, you know, Duke Nukem turns into Cycloid Emperor back and forth. Um that was really, really cool. That's something they experimented with. For the dual case, but that never, never came into the full game because it was simply just too expensive to produce. So I, I would say that that's that's one one really cool one. <laughs> awesome. Well, Fred, I don't have anything else for you, dude. You've been amazing, and I really appreciate your time and just your work that you do in general. Everything. Well, any any time, man. Thank you so much for for having me on board. It's been an honor. Yeah, uh, let's do it again sometime when you have new stuff to produce and all that and uh, tell all of your amazing friends that, that are working on new projects that I'd love to talk to them as well. Absolutely. I'll make sure to uh, to get all of our guys into... Uh... <laughs> all right, I want to say thank you to Fred for doing the interview. I want to say thank you to Killpixel for helping bridge the gap to do this interview. I want to say thank you to Andrew Holschult, not only for the music that you're hearing right now, but for just being an amazing human being and bringing us all together. And especially, big thank you to Brandflakes and her dad for going to the convention and actually talking to Fred to get him to uh, agree to do this. This has been an amazing one. It's one of the best episodes I think we've ever had. That said, we need to say thank you to all of our other supporters. So, Dots, Moose, Paul, Zach, Alexander, Lashaka, Brad, Night Owl, Tones, Jeffrey, Larissa, Nave, Steve, NVZ, Catman, Semiko, and Chibi Sniper. All of you are incredible human beings who have given to us through Patreon, PayPal, credit card, Amazon links, uh, buying stuff on Redbubble, and being Nitro Boosters. Kathala, bless all of you. If you would also like to support, make sure you head over to inthekeep.com and select our Join and Support tab. Till next time, stay in the keep. <laughs>